Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, I don't need to be in the country club uh, telling people what cars I have or that my house is bigger than theirs or my yacht's longer than theirs. I don't need it. What I need is the artistic creation of business. Entrepreneurs are not capitalists, they're capital artists. Okay, they're painting on a canvas. The canvas has to, happens to be their business. And if it gets smudged or it becomes worthless, they'll start on another canvas. And that's the mindset that you have to have if you wanna own your own business. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge and the Salt Conference. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hey, it's great to be on. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we jump into your trades, it's our tradition to start with a little bit about your background. So tell us where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? So I'm talking to you from two miles from where I grew up. I'm, I live two miles from my mom and dad, who still live in the same house that I grew up in. So I'm an Italian mama's boy. Uh, I grew up on Long Island in a town called Port Washington. I now live in Manhasset. Um, my dad was the crane operator locally at the sand pit, which we used to call it. It was actually a sand mine. Uh, his dad, my grandfather, uh, emigrated from Italy and went to northeastern Pennsylvania, was a coal miner. Uh, and then he ran a, a store. He was actually a butcher for a period of time. He died young, unfortunately, due to black lung disease. My dad, uh, you know, lost his parents very, you know, he was very young. He moved to Long Island responding to a classified ad not to mine coal in the ground in northeastern Pennsylvania, but to go out to Long Island and mine sand. And so he started as a laborer. Uh, he worked his way up to being the crane operator. When he got a little older, they allowed him to be the uh, truck dispatcher. Um, and so he spent 42 years at the same company. He was in the union. Uh, he was a hard worker. Um, my mom was a housewife. There was a time in America where uh, a blue-collar person like my dad could actually, off of his living, his salary, he could raise a, a family of three kids. Um, and we lived in the blue-collar Italian area of the, you know, we were in a neighborhood. And we lived in a blue-collar neighborhood. My uncle had a motorcycle shop at the top of the hill. Uh, he ran that motorcycle shop successfully for 50 years. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, he died last year. Uh, he was in his mid-90s when he passed. Um, but he was a – fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, these wow. were These were old-school, tough Italians. Uh, I So I – I did every job imaginable as a kid because the family needed money. I was a, I was in a Newsday paper route. I worked the local key food stocking shelves. I worked for my uncle selling mopeds in the 1970s at his uh, motorcycle shop. And, uh, but you know, my parents, uh, even though they had no college degrees or college education, they wanted us to get educated. So I, I, I got educated. I went to Tufts University, then Harvard Law School. And my first job on Wall Street was at Goldman Sachs, where I spent seven years at Goldman, 
um, in the uh, private, mostly in the private banking area. So when you were sort of heading off to college, did you know about investing in business? Did you have an idea about what you wanted to do or did that come later? No, I had high anxiety about money. If, uh, you know, you're cheaper than my therapist, so I might as well just let it all out on your podcast. You know, I, I had high, my dad was uh, up against it. So if his wages got cut uh, due to a slowdown in the economy, uh, that was bad for the family. So remember, um, somebody like my dad, if you're working on the weekends, that's good for you because you're getting time and a half or double time. If you're only working the 40 hours, that's bad for you because you don't have the extra income. Uh, and so we all went to work to help supplement my dad's uh, salary, if you will. Um, my mother worked in a nail salon. She became a makeup artist. She used to, you know, if I if I didn't, this is sort of funny to say this, but if I didn't see my parents on the weekend uh, during the day, that was a good thing. That meant my mother was uh, making up a bridal party somewhere on Long Island. She was a makeup artist. And my father was down on the dock working as a crane operator, those two things on a Saturday or even possibly a Sunday, th- those are good things for the family. So, uh, no, I had no clue, but I had a lot of anxiety about money. And uh, but I was also incredibly superficial with my decision making at that time. So I, I went to Tufts because I got recruited for football. Um, even though I'm, I'm, I'm short, I was pretty fast as a kid. I then hurt my knee, which. Uh, Gave me the opportunity to study as opposed to really do anything sports related, which was good for me because it ended up helping me get into Harvard Law School. But, but I, I was a junior at Tufts, had no idea what I wanted to do. I opened up the Time magazine. They were paying starting salaries at these New York City law firms, $65,000 a year. I said, oh my God, my dad's making like 33 grand. So I can go work as a lawyer and make double what my dad makes. Okay. I'm going to go to law school. And that was how superficial my decision-making was at the age of 20, 21. And so I, I got into Harvard Law School. My mother thought it was Hartford Law School. I mean, these people were clueless. Uh, <laughs> and I said, no, my, it's Harvard. She said, why the hell would they name it Hartford Law School if it's not in Hartford? I said, because it's down the block. It's in Boston. But that's but Harvard's real bragging rights. I would have thought that they would have quickly figured that out. So so anyway, yeah, she had no clue, and she got she got a clue later in life. And we always tease her about it. She's eighty five years old, and I always tell her, yeah, I went to Hartford Law School, Ma. You know, <laughs> but but you know, I'm there at law school, hating every minute of it. I wanted to drop out. Of course, I'm in an Italian family. My mother's go to is I'm going to kill myself. You know, I'm going to kill myself if you drop out. And then this is the best part of the story because you asked about my origin, okay? I wanted to drop out Thanksgiving weekend, 1986. My mother says she's going to kill herself. Okay, no problem. So I stay in law school. I finish law school. I get a job at Goldman Sachs. When my mother found out that Goldman Sachs wasn't a law firm, she started to cry, okay? And for about five years, okay, she told her friends in the neighborhood that I was at a law firm called Goldman Sachs. Okay, so I remember like Mrs. Panetti, okay, I remember, I was like, I don't know, I think it was at the Rosano's Italian Daily, and Mrs. Panetti said, so that law firm you're working at, Goldman Sachs, how is it working out for you? I'm like, the law firm that I'm working at? And then it, then it dawned on me, my mother was embarrassed, Mag, that I wasn't a lawyer, okay? So she was telling her friends in the neighborhood that Goldman Sachs was a law firm. I mean, you can't make the shit up, right? So, I mean, this is exactly how I grew up. What was your experience like when you got to Goldman? Did that background 
help you or ground you in any way? Or did you think it was sort of an obstacle to overcome? Uh, that's a really good question. Let me think about that. I would say a little bit of both, actually, right? I mean, you know, so this is like sort of so honest that it'll probably make people uncomfortable for me saying this to you, but I wasn't set up for Goldman. You know, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. I never saw the inside of a commercial office building. My first job interview I had my best suit on, but it was 100% polyester. Okay, I had bought it from Cy Sims. I had a polyester shirt on. It was shiny. Okay, that's what my parents were buying me, right? So I was fully flammable for my first <laughs> job interview, okay? And so those two partners at Goldman Sachs, they were looking at me like, okay, this kid. And they, they took me outside at the Charles Hotel, and the partner looked at me and says, hey, you're very, very smart, but you are the worst dressed person that we've ever met. You got to go buy some real clothes. I can't take you down to Goldman Sachs looking like this. I must look like a young Italian funeral director, right? Like I was an undertaker, right? So I'm like, okay. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I got a student credit card. It's like 20% interest rates. And I went to Brooks Brothers and they, they got me a, uh, you know, like a, a, a discount, student discount. I bought two suits, three shirts and a couple of ties, like these, these rep ties. You know, because you're like these boarding school reptiles, which I absolutely knew nothing about. And I went to Goldman Sachs and I had to buy a new pair of shoes too. So, so, and I got the job. So I was prepared for it though, because I had a lot of street smarts. You know, I, I had worked for my uncle's motorcycle shop. I had a lot of commercial instincts as a result of that, but I was ill prepared for it because I had no idea culturally how to frankly fit in. Yeah. Was your initial, and, and then we'll get to your trades, because I think this is sort of interesting. Did it take you long to acclimate? I mean, one, you know, to, to sort of figure out how to navigate in that environment, not the job specification, but kind of culturally? No, no, no question. And uh, you know what? Uh, I'm still acclimating. Okay, so I'll let you know when I'm fully acclimated, I'll give you the heads up, okay, because I'm actually still accl acclimating. And I often see these guys at big banks at these conferences, or some of them, frankly, even come to my own conferences, and they're like looking at me like I got three heads, you know, because I don't fit into the corporate box. I'm not going to act like them or talk like them. And then somebody said to me, well, you're not really that woke. I'm like, I'm not that woke. I'm, I'm, I'm in a coma. Forget about being woke, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to be me, okay? Treat everybody fairly. Treat everybody equally. If you don't like what's coming out of my mouth, that's too bad. I'm running my own company. You know, let's go. Treat people nicely and fairly and treat them equally. So you're in Goldman, and I... Put this trade first. I think we have two trades from the 90s, but I put this trade first. And that's a big bet on a biotech company called Centercore. You were long 50K calls. And this is one of your worst trades. So set the scene for us. What's happening at this time in your life? So what's happening in my life, I'm swinging from massive insecurity to overconfidence, borderline arrogance. Okay, so... I am uh, at Goldman. I'm on the trading desk. Uh, we have a biotechnology research analyst that has put a buy recommendation on this company, Centacore. I go to meet with him. 
And Centicor at that time was a biotech company in the early 90s. It was developing a cure for sepsis, which, you know, is a very difficult thing. 30 years later, we still haven't cured it. And they have this cure for sepsis. It's going to reduce uh, mortalities in the hospital. It's going to be a blockbuster drug. And so I meet with him, and I decide that I am a genius, okay? And even though I have no experience as a scientist, I have no experience in biotechnology, I'm a biotech guru. I'm a genius, all-knowing, omniscient genius. So I buy call options leading into the FDA phase one approval for this sepsis drug. And then the worst possible thing happens to me, they approve it. And so these call options go from like $6,000 to like $80,000, okay? And I am now a guru and I'm a genius. Rather than paying off my school debt with that money, which I should have done, I rolled it into the forward call sequence for the phase two trials. And get this, I went to the FDA, okay? I flew down to the FDA with the biotech guy for the phase two hearing. They disapproved it. They disapproved it, okay? And the call options imploded, and I went from plus 80000 to minus $50,000 in my account. It had to do with the way the leverage and the margin call worked on the account, and so now the Goldman Sachs Clearing Group is calling me and they're saying, you have to meet a margin call by Friday of 50,000 US dollars. Man, I didn't have the money. Okay, so now I'm in a panic. I'm going to lose my job. I call my boss and I tell him what happened. And he says, you know, you, you are an imbecile. And I said, yes, I am an imbecile. And he says, okay. He says, I'm going to take this out of your pay and I'll dock your pay. I'm going to pay it. So he had the firm pay the 50000 cleared the margin for me, and they docked my pay, okay, until, you know, it was paid off. And it was the most humbling and most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me, but it woke me up to risk, and it woke me up to overconfidence in investing, and it woke me up to being so far outside of my circle of competence what am I doing in biotechnology call options at the age of 27 when I absolutely have no clue as to what this is or what is actually happening? And so, yes, I think I went, I marked that one down as my worst trade because you're asking about four trades. But in a weird way, maybe that was like my best trade Yeah, because it set me up psychologically to be humbled by markets. And, you know, listen, I've been humbled by life and markets. There's been a lot of life experiences for me that have gone up and down. Uh, but that was a big one at 27, and I needed that money. Okay, so I went from a – I probably had, when I left college and law school, maybe $120,000 of school debt. And so I ridiculously added 50 more thousand dollars as I was trying to pay down the school debt. So – um happens. But I mean, the good news about this story is I love telling this story to young people because they're so, and they should be excited about life, enthusiastic. And yes, you can bubble over, you can bubble up into overconfidence. And I did, you know, but you have to manage it. And that's all. And it was a good, it was a great learning lesson. And by the way, it was a great $50,000 tuition. Okay, what what happened to me, you're not learning in a textbook or you're not learning in college. 
So it's interesting because your second trade is one of your best, and that is making a huge bet in financial services, resolution, trust, traveler stock, and warrants. That that really paid off for you, but it's another big bet. So explain this and, and how is – so you're still taking big bets, but are you smarter about it? So different bet. Um, so uh, because of that experience, it's sized. It's sized with a much smaller amount of my net worth. It's sized – recognizing that I could get it wrong. Um, I've, I've gone into every trade since the Senecor trade. Okay, I have this 100% wrong. Now what? Okay, as opposed to, oh, I'm so overconfident. This is just going to work out masterfully. And so that would be everything. My cryptocurrency trades, any trade that I've made in the stock market, any real estate trade. I'm always like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm 100% wrong. Now what? But in the in the thing that you're referencing, the RTC, the Resolution Trust, to remind your young viewers and listeners what that was, we had a banking crisis in the late 80s into the early 90s. And so we had a lot of uh, over-levered real estate assets and a lot of banks, uh, savings and loan banks went belly up. And the government stepped in with this thing called the RTC, the Resolution Trust uh, Corporation or whatever it was. And these banks moved all of their bad assets over to the RTC, and then the government began the process of unwinding these assets, and private equity participants like Blackstone and others uh, bought these portfolios from the government. Um, as that was happening, the economy was healing, and the financial services sector, in my opinion and the opinion of my partner at that time in the private wealth management area at Goldman, was improving. Okay, so now I'm inside my core competence. I'm working in financial services. I understand how the balance sheet and the income statement works and the leverage factors in these financial services companies. So I'm not in biotech now. I'm in something that I actually understand. And I said, okay, this is going to be very big for the financial services industry. And Sandy Wild at that time was running Travelers. He merged Travelers into Citicorp very famously, brought Jamie Dimon over there with him. Um, and so, but prior to that, so from like 1995 to 1997, I owned that stock and I owned the warrants on that stock. So that was a little bit of a levered kick to the stock and it made me a lot of money and it helped me pay off my school debt, uh, purchase a house, uh, which was a modest house in Manhasset and gave me enough additional money, like enough additional savings or a nest egg so that I could go start my own business. And so that's that. That's what I did. And that was a great trade um, for a number of different reasons. We got it right. It obviously worked. It was sized right. It wasn't sized overconfidently or ridiculously. Um, and you could always say with hindsight being 2020, oh, I should have put more money in that trade. But the answer to that is no, because you don't know what's actually going to happen. Um, but those factors, uh, that was probably one of the best trades of my career, both from the sizing of it, understanding of the risk, and then after it was successful, what I did with the assets. You know, I ended up doing really smart things, paid off debt, purchased a home, and then prepared myself with a nice nest egg to help me go start my first business.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know when you were at Goldman that you wanted to start your own business? Did you feel that entrepreneurial streak? Because you could have just kept climbing the ranks at Goldman, had a very nice career, been very successful. What what was it at that time that you were already thinking about starting your own? So it's interesting because one of my partners stayed at Goldman. He's been there now 30 years. He's had an unbelievable career, uh, made tremendous amounts of money, and he's got a great family, great lifestyle. Um, but it wasn't for me. And you just have to know yourself. And I would tell people, know yourself and follow your bliss and follow your dream. I went to see Mario Gabelli. He was a very famous money manager. Uh, some people probably don't know him outside the industry. He's 82 now. This is probably 28 years ago. So he's uh, you know in his 50s. And Mario said to me, you're not right for Goldman. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, look at your personality. You tell people what you think. You're not corporate. You know, the only way you're going to be super successful at Goldman is if you shave all of the sharp points off of your personality. So right now you're a star, shave it all off and become a Pentagon and then go work at Goldman, okay? Take all the sharpness out of your elbows, et cetera. He says, or you could do what I did. You could leave Goldman and build your own business. Let me tell you something else. You're going to be 50 in 10 minutes. That was like 30 at the time. Because you think it's a long time from now, but boom, you're going to be 50 and you're going to want to work. You're going to have energy. You're going to be still active, but you're going to be out to pasture at Goldman. You're either going to be in top management or you're going to be blown out the door or you're going to be irrelevant at the firm. Uh, so go leave and start your own business. And I was 30 at the time and I remember leaving his office and I looked up to him. He was an Italian-American, very successful in our business. I looked up to him, and I remember coming home and saying, you know what? He's right. I got to have enough self-awareness to know that I am not a Goldman Sachs corporate apparatchik. One of my buddies who stayed there 30 years, totally that, but not me. It's just not my personality. And moreover, you know, I like doing things that are outside the box. You know, I have spoken at the World Economic Forum. I obviously failed as the White House communications director, got my ass fired after 11 days. I've been on reality shows. I did I did the Celebrity Big Brother. I just filmed a reality show in the Wadi Rum, Jordanian Desert with Mike Piazza and Danny Amendola and Dwight Howe. We were jumping out of helicopters. It was a Navy SEAL special forces survival training um, I mean, I might be able to do that at Goldman Sachs. They'll have me in some kind of box stuffed in the closet. So that wasn't going to be enough for me. I'm not saying it's not a great career and they're not great people. And I loved my time at Goldman Sachs and I learned a lot from my experiences there. But I wanted to be able to be me and do what I wanted to do with my life. And so, um, look, I'm an entrepreneur. People say, oh, you're working for yourself. You're your own boss. That's never true. Anybody that says that doesn't understand, you always have a boss. Your clients are your boss, okay? So you're, believe it or not, the regulators are your boss. You know, I have to make sure that we're in regulatory compliance. Uh, I always tell my, my, my staff, 
performance is a close second to regulatory compliance because if we're not in regulatory compliance, it's over. You know, we're not Goldman Sachs where we can pay a fine and we can stay in business 150. You know, I think JP Morgan paid $4 billion of fines during the financial crisis and they can stay in business. A small company like mine can't. We can't afford that. In other words, we can't afford to pay the fine and we can't afford to get it wrong. It'll hurt our reputation. You know yeah, what I mean? You, you always have to, you always have, you're right. You always have someone to answer for. What, um, did that feel when you were thinking about and you went on and, and started your first firm, did that feel super risky to you? I mean, did you, were you married at the time? Did you have your family? What, what were you thinking? I was married at the time. I had two kids. I was 32 years old and I had just paid off my school debt. I still had a small mortgage, um, um, but I had some savings and I was scared out of my mind to the point where I made myself sick. Uh, I actually, I think I stressed my body out. I think I had the flu. I think I had a hundred plus fever, hundred degree plus fever my first day <laughs> on my job at my quote unquote new company, which was me and my partner sitting in a room smaller than the one I'm in right now. And I remember thinking, I gotta be crazy to do this. I'm leaving, I mean, this probably sounds like bragging, but I'm not bragging, I'm just being observant. Okay, I was making over a million dollars a year at the age of 32. And I went from making a million dollars a year, and that's 1996. That was big money a back then. Ago, yeah. And I and I was making a million dollars a year to making no dollars a year to start my own company. And I remember thinking, I am absolutely stupid to be doing this. Why am I doing this? But I was driven to do it. And you know what? It turned out when you when you make decisions like that, you are forced into the box of survivorship. And eventual success, you, you you're, you're going to figure it out, you know. Well, not everyone does, though, Anthony. Some people, I mean, the, no, you, know, you know what? I have and I haven't. I failed at things, and I get up and I get restarted. You know, you know that that's what you have to do. I mean, you know, I have a picture on my phone. Uh, we, you know, we haven't gotten to Bitcoin. I don't know if Bitcoin is a success or not. We don't know yet, right? So here's a picture on my phone. So we can't add this to the trades. Can you see that? Or probably not. Can you yeah. See that? Okay, that's me sinking in the SS mooch, okay? And I wish I owned that many Bitcoin, right? If you invite me back on, this could either be a great trade or a horrific one. I'm not sure which. But that's a composite, and I look like Tyrion Lannister, like a dwarf in the picture. Okay, it's totally fine. Um, and, and I'm sinking in the Bitcoin boat. And that was on the front page of the New York Post business section about six or eight weeks ago. And my Bitcoin exposure, I'm getting rocked right now. Now, Truth be told, I bought those coins in the 16, 17 thousands, and they're still trading in the 19 thousands, but they're down from 60 plus thousand. So I'm getting rocked and it could be a bad trade, but it may not be. I put it on for five years. Let's see what happens. My, my, my point is, why am I bringing that up? That could be another failure of mine, at which point, you know, I'm going to have to rebuild and rethink and restructure and regrow. That's what you do in life. You move and you adapt and you pivot and you, you have neuroplasticity in your brain where you're, you're expanding the flexibility of your intelligence. You chose that. I, I understand that it's sort of was being true to who you are, but financial instability was such a major part of your childhood that it's interesting that you left the security of a place like Goldman and took a gamble and kind of went back to that having financial instability, at least at the start. 
I'm going to explain why, because I think this is elementary to everybody's career as they think about their career and they're idealizing their their adulthood. There were moments of great financial anxiety and pain in my family from ages 11 to 18. So over that seven-year period of time, there was great financial uncertainty. And I remember thinking, okay, my dad has a boss and he has no control over what's happening to him. Okay, so therefore, I am going to do everything in my power not to have a boss. Okay, Jack Welch used to say, control your own destiny or somebody else will. Okay, and so I admired my dad's work ethic. I admired who he is as a person. That's why I tell my staff, we will never dishonor my dad or his work ethic, okay, or his honesty by doing anything wrong at Skybridge. I don't care if we go bankrupt, doesn't matter. You can call me an imbecile, but you can't call me dishonest or unethical, okay? And so, you know, but he had tremendous anxiety and volatility of earnings associated with the economy, which he couldn't control, and his boss, and what his boss was doing, you know? And so I said, I don't want to have a boss. And so at age 32, I didn't want to have someone knocking on my door and saying, hey, you're out of work now, go find a job. I, my, if my clients want to fire me, that's fine, but I'll go out and find more clients, trust me, okay? I, I know how to do that, so I will do that. But my, my point is no one singular person, a boss, he or she, is going to knock me off my game. So let's talk about your third trade because we're talking about Skybridge now. And this is, I think, really the thing that sort of launched that. And that's buying Citigroup's alternative investments in 2009. So talk to us about that because I think it's hard to overstate the just misery around that time in the financial sector. I mean, it was, you know, the global financial crisis. Things were blowing up. The unthinkable was happening. So an interesting time to make a big purchase. So, you know, what's going on with you and what, what are you? So what's going on with me is just to give you the backstory. So my first business was pretty successful. It was also in a bull market. So we started in 96. We sold the business about six weeks after the terrorist attack in 2001. And we had a billion dollars under management. And so it was a very healthy sale. It was a you know, nine-figure sale. I mean, it was over $100 million. We had four or five partners. We split the money. But, you know, that's 20 years ago. That was big money for a guy like me. Uh, I paid my taxes. I think I put a lot of that money into municipal bonds. And there it was. And so I had sold the business to Newberger Berman. I went to work at Newberger Berman. Uh, Newberger got bought by Lehman Brothers. That was also very good for me because I owned stock in Newberger and I got the bump. And so now I'm at Lehman Brothers and my contract ended. I went to Dick Fold and said, I wanted to start Skybridge. And so he was great. He gave me $10 million of balance sheet money to start Skybridge. And so we started Skybridge and we got off to a successful start. And then wham, we got hit with the financial crisis. And so now the business was doing poorly. I was quite nervous about the business. And um, we decided to do two things at that time. Uh, number one, we got a room block. It wasn't really purchasing it. We got a room block from the Encore Hotel, which is part of the Wynn Complex in Las Vegas. And we started what ultimately became the SALT Conference. Um, we did that because all of the major banks were leaving Las Vegas at the time. And I thought that this was a 
contrarians move to start a conference when everyone else is leaving the conference business, maybe we could create something um, out of the ashes of what was going on. And then the secondary thing was I had lunch with uh, Jane Frazier, who's now the CEO yeah. of Citibank. And Jane was a friend of uh, a friend. We got together. She was running with Mike Corbett, who was the, her predecessor CEO. She was running something called City Private Holdings or something like that. And they were dispensing and getting off their balance sheet all of their non-core assets. So they took $25 billion in from the federal government. And the government said, that's great, but we want you to be in commercial banking. Get rid of all of your non-core assets. And Jane said to me, I wanted to buy her hedge fund seating business because I was in the hedge fund seating business. And she said to me, well, I don't want to sell that to you, but I have a fund of funds. You know, I, I could sell you not just the seating business, but I could sell you the whole fund of funds complex. And I gulped and I said to myself, okay, I, I will buy that from you. And so this is what entrepreneurs have to do. I liquidated my entire municipal bond portfolio, my life savings, and I used it, plus I borrowed money to buy that business from them. And that was a risky thing to do, um, frankly. Um, but I thought it was an important thing for me to do because I thought that that business uh, would grow. And I thought if the financial crisis ended, and again, I had this belief that we're in a cyclical environment. You know, we think things are really bad and we think they're going to continue to go even worse, you know, Jamie Dimon's out talking about another 20% drop in the market. He could be right um, because markets usually go down 40% in a bear market, 50%. But I don't think it's going down 100%. I don't think JP Morgan or Disney's going to trade to zero. They have assets and they have cash flow and things like that. So I'm always of the more optimistic side. And I just made the bet that this would recover. And when it did, the Citibank assets combined with the Skybridge assets would be a good story. And that was the best trade of my career. And it was a very risky trade to an outsider. But again, unlike Senecor, I'm in the financial services industry. And I, and I knew that this was a thing I needed to do to allow for my business to survive. Um, and so that, so it worked out. So when you're making a massive decision like that and really putting everything on the line, how do you know it's right? Is it a gut feeling? Do you consult with others? Do you have a, you know, a group of sort of, you know, mentors or people that you turn to? How do you make a decision like that? Yes. So, so, I mean, these are great questions. So the answer is yes, you have mentors, you turn to people that are on your personal board of advisors and you're looking for advice, you're looking for help and counsel. Um, but you're making the decision in a vacuum of your own loneliness because ultimately it's your decision and you're going to live or die by that decision. But this is the thing that I think people need to understand. You either believe you're going to make it or not. Okay. So you either believe you're a Swiss army knife and you're going to pull out the right tool at the right time and deploy it or not. Entrepreneurs believe they can jump off of the cliff and they can build the airplane while they're descending to earth. That's what they believe. Now, some of them go splat and some of them pick themselves up. There's a gentleman by the name of Elon Musk. Uh, he was virtually bankrupt in 2008, virtually bankrupt. Uh, by his own admission, by his biographer's admission, you can, you can listen to YouTube videos 
of Mr. Musk talking about his near impending doom of bankruptcy. He was over levered in his rocket company and he was over levered in his electric vehicle company. And two or three things had to happen and break his way to prevent his annihilation. And they broke his way. He went on to become the richest person probably ever in the history of, of economic history, at least U.S. economic history. Um, but what Elon Musk knew, which I so admire about him, is that let's say it broke the other way. He got wiped out. He was going to rebuild. He was going to dust himself off and he was going to rebuild. You see, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood in a blue-collar family. If I've got to go back to a white T-shirt and a six-pack of Schlitz and a rabbit ear television to watch my beloved Mets, I'm doing that. That's where I came from, so I'm going to do that. Okay, I don't need to be in the country club uh, telling people what cars I have or that my house is bigger than theirs or my yacht's longer than theirs. I don't need it. What I need is the artistic creation of business. Entrepreneurs are not capitalists. They're capital artists. Okay, they're painting on a canvas. The canvas has to, happens to be their business. And if it gets smudged or it becomes worthless, they'll start on another canvas. And that's the mindset that you have to have if you want to own your own business. You don't fear failure. You don't have the self-consciousness of status in your mind. If I walk into a room and someone says, well, he's a loser, he you know, lost X, Y, Z. Okay, no problem. I'm a loser. But you know what? I'm having a great life because I'm experiencing the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. And the journey for me has been incredibly rewarding. It's rewarded me intellectually. It's, It's humbled me. It's made me sharper as a human being. It's made me more reflective. It's given me more empathy for other people and their personal struggles. And by the way, I stupidly went into politics and boy, what, what an eye opener that was too. Okay, and I've done all of that because I have an entrepreneurial mindset. And so that's my message to people. Relax. Okay. We all know how the thing ends anyway, right? I mean, what does Mel Brooks say? Relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. Just take a chill. Okay. That's beautifully said. I, you know, you mentioned that you mentioned the politics thing too, but even, even with salt. So you're, you're, you know, you're creating, you're challenging yourself in all these ways. Did you understand at some point that being a public figure was part of that? And do you like that? Does that stress you out? Is that a part of the sort of, you know, business that you've built that you enjoy? Another really good question. So I would say to you that I had no interest in being a public figure, and I can give you evidence of that. I I joined Goldman Sachs in 1989. I did not make a television appearance until 2009. So I just, you know, that's 20 years. Never went on TV, never had an uh, interview. I had my own business, started in 1996. I could have gone and done those things. I had no interest in it. So So what happened to me is we were failing. Okay, Skybridge was becoming low bridge, the bridge to nowhere, blown up bridge. I mean, it had all kinds of nicknames for it. And I was like, okay, well, how am I going to make this a success? Well, when we started the SALT conference, one of my friends said to me, well, you're not going to get anybody there if you don't promote it. Okay, so I went on. I think Neil Cavuto invited me on. I went on to talk about the SALT conference. And then he invited me back. And he was asking me about the economy. And he, okay, he invited me back. And then all of a sudden CNBC saw me. It's like, okay, forget about them. Come over here. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, I started growing this uh, persona in the media. 
related to the economy, related to business. And then because I was in politics, how did I get in politics? I got in politics only because how did you get it? How that, that, that I had no network, Mac. There was no network. So I'm at Goldman trying to meet rich and successful people. And I'm in a laborer, crane operator's family. I was never inside a country club, never hit a golf ball, never swung a tennis racket. How am I going to meet these people? And so I wrote my first check, Republicans, young Republicans for Rudolph Giuliani. Okay, I was 25 years old. I wrote him a $250 check to be part of his campaign. He loses to Dave Dinkins. That's very good for me. I end up becoming a friend of his. I end up working with him. 93, he wins. I'm 29 years old. I'm now part of Rudy's network. And I'm meeting all these successful and influential people. I met a ton of people through politics. So I worked for Rudy. I worked for Pataki. I worked for D'Amato. I worked for uh, all different types of people. Then a relatively unknown guy who went to law school with me was running for president. His name is Barack Obama. I was like, okay, I don't really remember him. One of my buddies said, you're a good fundraiser. Even though he's a Democrat, will you help the guy out? He went to law school with us. So I remember running into Obama in July of 2007. I said, Senator, I'm about to write you a big check, but I want to lie to all my friends and tell them that you and I were good friends in law school. Is that okay? I mean, I'm about to give you a big check. And he looked at me. He has the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. He just lit up. He looked at me and said, hey, Mooch, if you double the amount of the check, we could take it all the way back to Hawaii, okay? You know, like we were in high school together, okay? I thought it was really funny. I, you know, I ripped up the check. I had another check in my pocket. I doubled it and I handed it to him, okay? So I worked for Obama in 2008. So it wasn't like I'm Mr. Strident Republican or Strident Democrat. What made you go to be press secretary, though? It's such a brutal job. Well, that's a whole different story. That's a, that's a whole different story. That's a story of ego, and that's a story of misplaced ego, and uh, it's a cautionary tale for people. Don't let your pride and ego get in the way of your decision-making. So I could have easily stayed in my lane of Republican Party fundraiser, well-connected into the party, and I was hosting Wall Street Week for the Fox Business Channel at the time. I could have easily stayed in that lane. And my wife, uh, who, thank God, we're still married, I mean, because that was also a strain on our marriage— uh, probably hated Donald Trump almost as much as Melania hates him. I mean, that's like really up there, you know. I mean, she really couldn't stand him. And so she begged me not to do it. But here I am, a blue-collar kid, grew up on Long Island, went to Tufts and Harvard, built two successful businesses. Now the American president is asking me to go work for him in the White House. And I said, oh, I got to go do that. Well, the American president is batshit crazy. Hopefully you're allowed to curse on your pockets. And I said, well, he is batshit crazy, but, you know, I'll be able to work with him. I worked with him successfully in the campaign. And that was a mistake of pride. And that was a mistake of ego. And I made that mistake. And, uh, you know, so that's why I took the job. But when I when I left the press box, when I was in the uh, Brady press room giving a press conference, when I was done, I was walking upstairs from lower press back up to the Oval Office and my cell phone was ringing. And I, I can't tell you who it was, but it's a very well-known guy. He said, what the hell's wrong with you? I said, what? He said, you can't talk like that to the American people from the White House. You can't tell the truth like that. You're about to get annihilated. 
I said, what are you talking about? He goes, hey, let me tell you something. This town is allergic to the truth. I've got aides for Republican aides in the House and Republicans aides in the Senate looking for opposition research on you to knock you the hell out of here. And then I helped them because I made a – I said some ridiculously very funny thing about Steve Bannon, which is probably one of the more legendary things. I can't repeat it on your podcast. It's not, a, it's not appropriate for you know his parental discretion as advice. But, I mean, he was one of the biggest assholes that I had ever met in my life. He was a malevolent guy. And, you know, anyway, make a long story short, you know, I was talking to who I thought was a friend – uh, the guy, the journalist's father, worked with my dad at construction on Long Island. The families knew each other for 50 years. And I said a very flippant Long Island Italian comment about Steve Bannon. And the, he recorded it and he ran to CNN with it. And I said, okay, well, now I'm getting fired. And that Monday, General Kelly fired me. And I left. And that was it. You know, I just interviewed General Kelly at, at mid. Mitt Romney's conference uh, this past weekend. General Kelly and I have become very close personal friends, and we travel around the country together. We do we do uh, public speaking together. I always lead off with, hey, General, I'm asking the questions. You're not allowed to fire me again, okay? <laughs> Stay calm. I'm going to ask you the question. My, my point is, he fired me. He had the right to fire me. I deserve to have been fired. When you make mistakes like that, be accountable for them. Don't blame anybody else but yourself. I made the mistake. I was still loyal to Trump after that. I, I was like, no problem. I want to be loyal to the president and help the president. I'm a patriot. But when you start acting completely nuts and you're starting to disavow the system and the checks and balances of the system and you act literally like a sociopathic buffoon, then you have a responsibility to speak out against that. Okay. And so, and so, and like, you know, as like I tell my Republican friends, he's the wrong messenger for your movement. Okay. So find a different messenger. Calm down, okay, and let's let's run the country appropriately, okay. Enough of this left and right nonsense. How about right or wrong? Yeah, and and we we certainly need some progress. I had no problem speaking out against them. It cost me uh, relationships. It cost me my business. Um, you know, meaning you know you know it not, not, didn't cost me my business, but it it cost me revenues in my business. But that's fine. I'm a big boy. So I want to squeeze in your fourth trade, although I'm fascinated by this part of the conversation, but your fourth trade is interesting because it's a concentrated bet on structured credit assets. And I'm going to put it at 2019. And this happens so often on this podcast because it was a good trade before it became a bad trade. So it's a trade that had worked for you um, until it didn't. So talk to me a little bit about how that how that happens and why did it work once and not work again? Well, so, I mean, we put that trade on in the uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So a lot like what was going on with the Resolution Trust back in the 90s, the financial markets were healing. Um, and uh, this is sort of the 2009-10 timeframe. And so structured credit, housing loans, credit card loans, auto loans, things that are packaged and structured by Wall Street and syndicated, if you will, um, is, uh, um, you know, how could I say this? Uh, they were getting blown to pieces in the 2008 crisis. It was down 40, 50, 60%. So we were buying things 30 cents on the dollar, expecting them to go to 70, you know, not never get back to 100 um, and so we made that bet. It was very successful. 
we then uh, shedded those assets and we started buying into activism and things like that. And then in 2017, 18, when I returned to Skybridge after my uh, failed political career, we we went back into structured credit. Why did we do that? Well, we thought that the volatility was low and we thought that the beta, okay, that's your measurement of risk to the overall market. Uh, if it's below one, that means you have taking on less risk than the market. The beta on that stuff was 0.3. So we were taking 70% less risk than the overall market. And we thought the market was a little top heavy. So we thought that was a defensive place to be. And we got it wrong. Uh, in March of 2020, uh, that beta, which is just, you know, garbage in, garbage out data, uh, th those trades got annihilated in the COVID-19 crisis. And no one had expected the economy to go from a two-ish percent growing economy to a standstill. But this is my message to your podcasters, okay? Anything that you think cannot happen will happen. Okay, let me repeat that, okay? Anything you think that cannot happen will happen, okay? And you have to live your life like that, okay? So, um, you know, we didn't, we got caught and uh, we had too much on, we had too much exposure and, I think I said it to one of your producers, it was like we were picking up pennies, we were earning yield, but we were picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And so the steamroller hit us and knocked our principal down. Now, we recovered from that, um, and uh, but structured credit is down again. But we've recovered and we rotated out of it. I'm more into cryptocurrency now and just some more growthier places. But again, I'm doing this 34 years and you make mistakes, you get things wrong, okay? You know, Berkshire Hathaway, the legendary investor Warren Buffett, go look at what his stock has done year to date, okay? You do get things wrong, okay? And so so you have to stay humble and you have to stay open-minded to what's going on in the markets. What keeps you in the game? Because now, as you mentioned, you're into crypto, FTX took a stake in, in Skybridge, and that's like a whole new area, whole growth area, it seems like that's a hard choice, a risky choice to put yourself in there, and yet you do. What do you? What keeps you sort of on that front foot? Again, again, I could be wrong, and uh, you know, you'll invite me back on. Well, either like I said, I, I'm sinking in that boat, according to the New York Post. I'm either going to be sinking or be building my own yacht. It's going to go one way or the other. I looked at the technology. I have a pretty decent understanding of financial services after three decades, and I just think the Blockchain technology is better technology than what's out there right now. And in the world, as we're decentralizing, which is a very empower, empowering thing for the individual, um, and uh, um, I, I mean, again, I, the reason I'm hesitating is I, everything I'm about to say I could be 100% wrong on, so I don't I don't want to say it with any level of definitiveness, but I just think that this technology is a wonderful delayering mechanism for an economy, and it's going to shorten up the, you know, we right now go through third parties to do all of our transactions. We go through a bank, we have mortgage companies, all over. Over the blockchain, we're going to have peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So you're sitting in that restaurant. You're not going to take out your American Express card. You're going to take out your phone. 
that is had a smart wallet embedded on it, and you're going to have maybe a U.S. stable coin. You're going to have something on the phone that is recognized as valuable, and you're going to send it to the restaurant in exchange for your meal, and you're going to save the 3.5%. And if you take that and you spread it over the entire economy, it's very disinflationary, and it is a extraordinary, um, in my mind, again, I could be wrong, but it is extraordinary in my mind, um, a uh, wonderful delayering mechanism. And I want to own a lot of it, and I and I and I want to be in it. What do, What do you think the biggest misconception about you is? <laughs> I think there's a lot of misconceptions about me, but I mean, that's another great thing about growing up Italian. Okay, like you actually do listen to your grandmother. Like my grandmother told me, what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> Okay, so I actually don't give a shit, okay? But I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about me. The way I look, let me tell you something. This is a terrible thing to say. You probably will edit it out of your podcast. But if I was bald and I had super thick glasses and I looked like a 58-year-old geezer, okay, and you looked at my resume, you would think I'm really fucking smart. But because I talk the way I do and because I grew up the way I do and because I look the way I do, people are like, what the fuck? You know, they think I'm like some kind of, you know, it's like when I was in the White House, these, I mean, it was like unbelievable. I was Tony Soprano on the Potomac. I was a Jersey Shore cast member. I'm like, wow, the Italians are the only ones you can still go after like this. I mean, it was like sort of crazy, right? But I don't care. You know, you can call me mooch. You can call me anything you want. I don't care. I'm just going to live my life. And do what I think is right for myself and my family. Are you on Twitter? Do you deal with any of the social? How do you deal with the social media stuff? Ignore it. I mean, one of the, one of the things, Kellyanne Conway, when I got to the White House, I have two phones. She said, could I have your phones, please? I said, sure. And I gave her my password. She went into notifications and she shut off my Twitter notifications. She said, trust me, don't look at these things. Okay. And she was right. I actually asked because I think that um, people are living in a world where they live online a lot. And, um, you know, I think it's hard to navigate uh, sometimes. And you've done a great job of doing that and kind of kept your your roots about you, you know, and, and your center. What advice would you give? Um, you gave so much fantastic advice about sort of overcoming failure and kind of picking yourself back up again. What would you leave people with when it comes to sort of dealing with the stress around that? How do you how do you stay so cool? sort of calm and, and carry on and kind of reinvent yourself over and over. Leave yesterday behind. Leave it behind, okay? Okay, leave it behind, okay? The millstone of regret. You cannot get through life without making regrettable decisions, okay? You can't. You made a mistake in a relationship. You made a mistake in business. You made a misjudgment about a person. It caused you grief on your job. You can't do it. There's too many decisions. And you're guessing. Most of the time you're guessing. So you can't, you know, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that, okay? I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I said something really stupid about Steve Bannon. Very funny, but I said something really stupid about him. It got me fired from the White House. Let me kick myself in the pants today. Jeez, you know? No. You take the millstone of regret that's on your neck Take it off your neck and you leave it behind you. And that's on all things. And you got today. And if the good Lord is good to you, maybe you're going to have tomorrow. Let's seize today and let's focus on how we're going to grow for tomorrow and make ourselves a better person. That's all we can do. Okay. That's it. 
Okay. And if you put that in your brain, you're going to, you're going to be a happier, better disposed person. You're going to have a better disposition. If you're not capable of doing that, you're going to torture yourself. And why do you want to torture yourself? You're going to be dead anyway. Okay. You know, just relax. You see what I mean? If you do that, I think it's a, I think it's a mind, it's a sweeping mindset change that leads to more productivity and a better outcome. I just believe that. Okay. Now, you know, am I, I'm far from perfect. I'm not as rich as Elon Musk, but I'm not poor, but you know what? I'm having a good time. Okay. The Mets suck, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that, but that's fine. You know, I mean, but I am having a good time. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, it's great to be on. Thank you for inviting. I don't know who invited me, but I appreciate it. And you asked very good questions, by the way. So thank you. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. 